Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. The world is changing faster than ever, and the world of education is too. Advances in psychology, biology, and a whole range of other fields have opened up new lines of thought about the purpose of school and how it can best serve a new generation of students. Join me on the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast every week to explore these new ideas. In our last episode, we spoke with Miss Rebecca Bitten, a Braemar teacher and mental health coach, about the situation of burnout and overwhelm in the lives of students, especially as they prepare for their upcoming exams. Welcome to the Braemar Life Skills Academy podcast. I'm Mike Helsby, the Director of Student Experience here at Braemar, and today I am honored to be joined by Dr. Diana Breacher. Uh, Dr. Breacher is a clinical psychologist who has been working in the Toronto Metropolitan University Center for Student Development and Counseling since 1991. Uh, her long-standing interest and certification in positive psychology led to a shift in her role in 2016, whereby she started the Thrive TMU initiative and co-founded the Thriving in Action program. She is adjunct faculty in the psychology department and the MBA department. Dr. Breacher, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Mike. I'm delighted to be here. So we like to start uh, each of our episodes getting our audience a bit more familiar with our guests. Um, can you please, I'm, I'm just going to ask a very open-ended question, tell us about uh, your relationship to well-being, uh, your history as a, a clinician, and uh, how you arrived in your current position at TMU, uh, developing and working with the Thriving in Action program. Sure. Um, so I spent 25 years working as a psychologist and counselor in the um, counseling center, uh, working with students who are struggling with anxiety, depression, trauma, loss. I also trained interns and supervised staff as the director. And I s spent a lot of time dealing with crisis and crisis intervention. And what I wanted to do was to get ahead of the curve. I wanted to reach students before they fell apart and to see if I could provide skills that they could use, that they could have in their toolkit so that when they fell, they didn't fall as far or as for as long. And um, in 2016, I took a um, seven month certificate course in positive psychology really enabling me to uh, become familiar with the research and the interventions in that field. And it led me to develop um, a model of resilience and a program related to resilience, which I have rolled out for students, faculty, and staff. It's a four session program. I've literally reached thousands of um, people doing that because um, students will benefit from learning about resilience, but they will also benefit if they're professors and other staff they interact with are also thinking about resilience. So I wanted to bring about a bit of a cultural shift. Um, and about a year into it, I partnered with my colleague, Dr. Dina Kara Schaefer, who's a learning strategist, and we developed Thriving in Action, which is a blend of thriving strategies, mostly based on uh, positive psychology, but also influenced by cognitive behavioral therapy, which is what I do and uh, Dina's expertise in um, learning strategies, but also as a yoga teacher. And so she brings in a lot of the body and breath as part of emotional regulation. Wow. 
Uh, well, as, as somebody who, who counts themselves among the many thousands who, who you've helped, um, let me just say thank you. The, the toolkit that you've put together online is, is truly impressive, and it, it, it offers so many different access points. I think that's maybe the thing that I like most about it, that I can walk into this Thrive TMU site on any given day. I can ask myself as an educator, just as you have, what, what, what exactly uh, tools do I want to offer my students uh, to get ahead of the curve, to, to, to jump ahead of some of these, at this point, fairly predictable uh, crises that we're seeing. And I can go onto this site. I'm, I'm going to share my screen for the audience at home just so you can get a taste of what's offered uh, in this program. We can, on this Thrive TMU site, explore the art and practice of a, a truly massive range of, of skill sets, uh, appreciativeness, connectiveness, determinedness, I'm just naming a few of them, healthfulness, meaningfulness, joyfulness, resourcefulness, skillfulness. And each of these, these aren't just words, these are linked with explanatory videos and then a, a pretty impressive series of resources, um, projects, workbooks, um, journals, response sheets that can help students to understand more deeply how these different skill sets might positively influence their experience as students. Um, what was the process like developing the, this? I'm going to call it a toolkit again. I'm not sure how you like to, to frame it. Um, but how did you identify these different skills? And, and perhaps what are you seeing in terms of student engagement with this resource set? Right. So uh, basically, we started off um, with a pilot study where we offered um, eight sessions of a blend of thriving and learning strategies to a group of 16 students. And uh, the response was very positive. We were started to do research, we did pre and post tests and such, and um, it was a compelling story so much so that um, Dina was seconded into my area. We started offering this as a full-time, um, our full-time jobs. Uh, we started to offer three or four um, Thriving in Action 10-week sessions each semester. Um, and although we were reaching students, we realized we wanted to scale it up. So we thought, okay, if we can take what we're doing in the classroom and put it online, then students can begin to um, interact with the resource independently if they miss a session, but also if they've never come to a session, they can still um, get benefit from it. We also have trained now um, close to 600 post-secondary professionals in this program through these training institutes that we run once or twice a year um, so that people can implement it in their post-secondary institution in the way that fits best with them. So we're not at all prescriptive about how you use these materials, but we have given these materials for people to adapt as needed. So um, there's lots of different versions of this now being played out in other um, universities and colleges. Um, so our goal was to scale it up. Um, our first two years of running the program, we did research pre and post using a variety of measures of thriving quotient, uh, the OQ45 and others. Um, and what we found is that uh, for the 70% of the students who were in a great deal of distress when they started with us, by the end of the 10 weeks, their distress levels drop down to below the cutoff of distress. Wow. So were they thriving? Maybe, maybe not, but they were certainly no longer languishing to use Corey's language. Um, and so uh, we got a grant and we were able to create this online resource. We're actually in the process as we speak, we're updating it because it's three years old. And so 
Our goal is to have all the updates done by November 18th, and then it goes um, to the tech folks. Um, and we're playing with, um, you know, how else to scale up this material because in a group of 20 or 30 or 40 students, that's 40 people, not thousands. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I, I can only speak for from my own experience with your materials, but you've done an incredible job keeping it inclusive as you've scaled up as much as you have. I, I think you've, you've done a wonderful job keeping front of mind that um, we may all be exhibiting, let's say, common symptoms of languishing um, at any given point in our university careers. But the reasons for that and the tools that are going to best intervene in those situations are truly wide-ranging, and, and everybody needs uh, d different volumes and, and, and different approaches to their own health and, and well-being. And as I said before, uh, you've offered such an impressive range that I, I think anyone who is experiencing these these poor outcomes, these poor mental health outcomes, um, is going to find something there that's going to have an effective, positive um, influence on their lives. Thank you so much. It's so kind of you to say. Um, this is what our hope has been. And in fact, um, the one way we've been really able to scale it up is to move it into the classroom as a four credit course. Mm. So Dina and I have taught it through the Faculty of Arts um, five times now, um, initially in person, and then we moved to online during the pandemic, um, where it's a four credit course. So we um, added assignments and assessments and a required reading list, but essentially kept the same curriculum and uh, the feedback from the students was that this was really the best way to learn the material because it wasn't added or extra to their lives. It was one of their courses. And the messaging from that the students received in their minds from the university is we endorse that this is worth learning. Yeah. Um, and so it was really a win-win all around in the sense that um, students brought it into their lives. It was beneficial for them as they were going through school. And it wasn't something that they had to choose between get that assignment done in time or go to thriving in action. They were just able to show up to class. Yeah, you said it. And the, the validation uh, from the university saying this is something that um, is, is totally worthwhile of your time and, and shouldn't be thought of as secondary to your, in, in your efforts or in your time management. Um, you are not alone in the... Um, in that type of validation, the, the entire positive psychology movement, beginning with, with Martin Seligman in, in the 70s and, and moving forward, seems to be gaining more and more legitimacy and popularity, um, especially in our culture. I know, for example, that, that uh, Dr. Seligman has been teaching at uh, University of Pennsylvania a, a master's program in, in positive psychology for a number of years now. Um, I know Tal Ben-Shahar has been uh, the, the happiness professor. I think he calls himself at Harvard for a number of years. And these are the most well-attended courses uh, in the Harvard curriculum. And, and we're seeing this become more and more legitimized uh, across the world in university programs, especially uh, with the message being that these types of skills, developing the, the, the tenets of well-being in your life are not luxuries. They are not, you know, options. They, they're fundamental. They're, they're, they're exactly as fundamental as anything else you're doing to pursue your future goals and should be included, uh, I think I'm safe in saying, in the healthy life of, of any individual who's striving towards a goal. 
I, I'm no expert, and I'm, I'm really looking to you to, to help us understand better positive psychology and its relation to things like cognitive behavioral therapy and especially the development of resilience today. Can you just tell me if, if I've got this, this layman's definition of, of positive psychology correct and where I've gone wrong? Um, I understand the positive psychology movement to be largely a response to the psychoanalytic movement of the earlier 20th century, which had sought to unearth the largely childhood-based causes of mental illness. Um, and I've, I've seen this described as being looking for exactly how far on the negative scale was someone and trying to get them back to zero. So we have them explore their unconscious, explore their repressed childhood memories, attempt to identify what is causing disordered thought, and then hopefully get you back to some sort of baseline. Positive psychology responds to this by saying, we we aren't necessarily best served or only served when we look for what is wrong with us. We must, alongside that, or perhaps even before that, look for what is right with us, what we have to be grateful for, what our personal strengths are, um, where we can be best expressed and recognized authentically in this world. And rather than trying to unearth the, the nasty demons hiding in the, the corners of our, of our unconscious, trying to bring into the light... Um, clear thinking about disordered thought, the ability to uh, recognize the uh, examples of disordered thought when it pops up in our lives, and replace them with, with more useful, more rational, more actionable um, thinking. But what have I done well there, and, and what have I missed? Um, I, it, what you've done is uh, really beautifully articulated almost everything. There's one piece that I want to add to. Um, I think that positive psychology was reacting not only to psychoanalytic thought, but to the um, whole field of um, psychological therapies, including cognitive behavioral and behavioral and narrative and on and so forth, that um, at speaking as a, a psychologist and as a clinician, um, we had too modest a goal for our clients. Mm. Um, so if someone comes depressed, the goal is to have them leave no, no longer depressed. Or if they're dealing with an anxiety disorder, no longer having panic attacks, no longer avoiding and on and so forth. Um, positive psychology, the goal is to go from that neutral back to baseline and to flourish, to go way above it. They talk about it as north of zero, north of neutral. Yeah. And so... Um, the piece that I think is so important here, psychoanalytic um, thought was only one of the many things that positive psych responded to. And it was even when you looked at the amount of research that was done in um, psychology, almost all of it was on pathology and very little on flourishing or on you know having a good relationship. You know, Seligman talks about uh, couples therapy having the goal of being better fighters mm -hmm. rather than having a wonderful relationship. And so it's about shifting those aspirations and those goals and doing the research so you have evidence-based data that tells you how to do that. And I think that's the real strength of positive psych is it's so deeply rooted in best practices of research and only then applying it to practice. From, again, from a layman's perspective, that's what I've loved about it the most as well, as I've dug into some of these more popular texts like um, Csikszentmihalyi's Flow and um, 
just finished a while ago, Jonathan Haidt's happiness hypothesis, um, mm-hmm. that it's, it's not the type of um, overgeneralized, some might call um, maybe wishful thinking style uh, of, of happiness suggestion or self-care that we might otherwise see in the popular sphere. It really does root itself deeply in, in uh, the science and the study of flourishing, of, of, of what yeah. makes people happy. And that's obvious to me, even as someone who's you know, my, my first and only psychology course was about 10 years ago now, uh, though I did enjoy it. So we're in, in positive psychology, we're asking what conditions, what activities are most likely to lead to flourishing. And I understand that Seligman has, has developed, among his many frameworks, um, the, the five pillars of wellness. And I, I probably do a bad job of remembering them. I believe it's something like positive emotion, uh, engagement, relationships, motivation, and accomplishment or something like that. It's not motivation, it's meaning. Oh, pardon me, meaning. Okay, yeah. I'm so glad I have you alongside for this because I'd never be able to speak <laughs> about this perfectly competently. Um, can you kind of develop that? What do we mean or what are we looking for as indicators when we say wellness, when we say that student right. is, is doing well? Let me add one more. Um, Emilia Zobotaskaya was a graduate student of Seligman's at Penn in the uh, Master's of Applied psychology program. She started um, a center in New York City called the Flourishing Center, and it was through them that I took the certificate in positive psychology. Mm. And she proposed uh, a sixth pillar, and she called it vitality. And so I'll unpack that as we go. So Seligman developed PERMA, and Zavitskaya added V. So PERMA V is how it's called. So positive emotion is probably intuitively the thing that most people think about when they think about flourishing is, you know, I feel good, I'm satisfied with my life, I'm excited, I'm happy. Engagement is really most directly connected to flow and our optimal performance, you know, so that we're so connected to what we're doing that we lose our sense of time and, um, you know, we kind of lose our sense of any kind of self-consciousness and we're doing our absolute best. Mm -hmm. But it's also about curiosity and a growth mindset, for example, where we understand that our success is going to be predicated on effort and we're not shying away from effort, et cetera. Um, The relationships in our lives, it reflects both the good relationships that nurture us, but also the absence of the toxic ones. So that's really important to think about, like how do you set boundaries and limits in the relationships that aren't going well with like a toxic boss or whatever it might be. The M refers to meaning and purpose and sense that we're in this world, that what we do makes sense. We feel connected to something bigger than ourselves. Um, We get a sense of satisfaction from the work itself because it's part of our value system. Uh, The A refers to accomplishment and achievement. So we have goals, we achieve those goals. Again, that's part of the way that we flourish is um, it's linked to meaning because we uh, set our goals, we achieve them, we get the sense of I'm, I'm worthy, I've done what I set out to do, it's kind of self-efficacy and agency. And then vitality. So Amelia refers to vitality as, are you getting a good enough sleep? Mm-hmm. Are you eating well? Can you exercise? Are you pain-free? Um, how is your body? Are you healthy? Um, because if that's missing, the other five kind of really struggle to help you to flourish if you're in a great deal of pain or ill. Um, so that's what I teach when I teach my positive psych course, or I also teach in the MBA program on mental health and wellness in the, in the workplace. 
um, it's all about permaville. And underneath it, kind of as a foundation, is the five-factor model of resilience that I developed, which is, I don't believe that we can flourish unless we're able to bounce back. And so there's different models of resilience, and I can go into them if you want, but I'll just tell you about the one I created at the moment, which is I think of it as like um, a puzzle, and in the heart of the puzzle is mindfulness. Um, so we have to be in the present moment um, and to work at that in order to uh, bounce back. Uh, tapping into the good things that are going on in our lives, noticing them really helps us counteract that negativity bias that we're all um, uh, burdened with, mm -hmm. which is our capacity to notice danger and threat and problems. Um, being optimistic, having that positive expectation about the world and the, our explanatory style of how we explain why things happen to us has a huge impact on our capacity to bounce back. Uh, forgiving ourselves for our mistakes through self-compassion is another component to it where we can uh, be our own best friend in the moment we need it the most, showing that kind of generosity of spirit. And then finally, uh, persistence or perseverance or grit. So um, how do we keep going even when it's hard, even when we uh, encounter obstacles? And so when you put those five things together, and that's really the, prem the, the foundation of my four-session training on resilience, is um, it's a toolkit that you can choose to use with very specific exercises related to each one of them. So for mindfulness, it's practicing meditation and on and so forth. Um, it helps people to bounce back um, when they encounter setbacks. Not necessarily trauma, that's a different yeah. kind of resilience. This is specifically for challenges and setbacks. Okay. Um, I, I'm trying to figure out what the best way to uh, help our audience at home to conceptualize uh, this framework, because as you said, clarity uh, is an important part and being able to articulate exactly what's what's going on in our lives. Where are their deficits? Where are their surpluses? Where are their strengths? Where are their anxieties, et cetera? But I think even just listening to the explanation that you just gave, um, there's a proliferation of terminology within, I think, all psychology, perhaps within all fields. But it certainly um, left me sort of turning back the page over and over again as I've tried to understand this stuff to really understand how it all fits together. So what I propose is that I uh, create a sort of a sample case for a student and maybe ask you how they might approach this framework and begin to use it as in, in an interventionist way in their lives to, okay, to sure. move towards flourishing. Let's imagine a classic case, uh, something we see in, in our school all the time, uh, what, we've, what we've decided to name procrastination. So there's, there's a student who knows that they have a deadline, um, but in the last three deadline-associated assignments, they have failed to complete the work on time or have left it to the very last minute and then done a job that they're, they're not particularly proud of. Now, procrastination as a, as a term is something that's I think rightfully come under a lot of fire um, probably over the last 20 years because it's just it's it's a kind of lazy explanation for what's really going on in the life of somebody who's who's having trouble staying on task let's say or having trouble getting down to work when they want themselves to so this student ha has been told by their teacher you need to stop procrastinating but as we know that's not very actionable right so you say well, what am i supposed to do hit, hit my head against the table harder like my you know what what tools can i use to get over this thing that you've you've 
developed this name for. Oh, thank goodness. Here's, here's Thrive TMU. Here's Dr. Diana Breacher. And she's just done an awesome job on the BLSA podcast of describing the five-factor resilience model and how it underlies um, the six pillars of wellness. Where is the entry point for that student who's procrastinating and how can they use those terms and their interconnections to move towards more success? Sure. So um, I'm going to draw on the work of Tim Pitchell, who's um, a psychology researcher at University of Ottawa, and he's written a wonderful book on procrastination. And in it, he describes um, and defines procrastination as the needless delay of our goals. So as we go through our day, there's going to be a lot of things that we have to delay because something else is now the new priority. Um, but when we have goals, like I have to get this assignment done, and we delay it to tomorrow, it's often based on this fantasy that I'm going to feel like doing this tomorrow when, even though I don't feel like doing it today. Mm -hmm. um, procrastination is a form of avoidance. We avoid things that either um, make us feel anxious because we don't feel prepared to do it, or they're going to be too hard, or um, it's going to require too much effort, and we just don't feel like we have the energy. So um, this is based on um, a phrase I learned from Christine Podesky in a workshop. She's this wonderful uh, psychologist who wrote the book Mind Over Mood that many, many people know. Um, and she talks about the premise of follow your plan, not your mood. Okay. And for her, it was in the context of when you're treating someone who's very depressed and they often don't have that capacity to initiate action you develop a plan and you get them to follow that plan, even though their mood isn't up to it. But what they find is that you put the cart before the horse, right? So uh, they do the action and then their mood follows behind. So it applies as well to procrastination. So you say, okay, I'm gonna follow my plan, which is today, this afternoon, I'm gonna work on this assignment, even though I don't feel like it. But I'm initially only going to make a commitment to the first 15 minutes. So I call it the 15 minute rule. We know from exercise that the body takes about 15 to 20 minutes to get warmed up to a cardio exercise. And so what that means is initially it's really hard to do it and then you kind of get in the group. Mm -hmm. So let's apply that to an assignment. Set your timer for 15 minutes, follow the plan, do it this afternoon. And if after 15 minutes, you're really not producing anything, you're free to walk away and try later. But often what happens is momentum, just like it does with exercise classes. And so all of a sudden you're in it and you're getting some ideas. And I'm like, oh, okay, I'm doing it now. So the follow your plan, not your mood is kind of an end run around this notion that tomorrow I'll feel like it. Like there's this wonderful Simpsons cartoon where um, Homer and his wife are talking and she's saying, you know, oh, someday in the future, uh, your, your sons are going to really resent the fact that you didn't spend any time with them. And he goes, oh, that's a problem for, for uh, future Homer, not for today. And that like really, this is from Tim Pitchell's book. This is what characterizes procrastination. Mm -hmm. It's like tomorrow is a, not my problem. It, it's a stranger who has to deal with tomorrow, not me. Yeah. And this is a way of saying, no, I can start to do it. Um, 
There are also lots of learning strategies associated with procrastination where we need to break things down into manageable chunks. There's something called an assignment calculator that most post-secondary institutions have them. Um, TMU does, University of Toronto Scarborough, Humber, all kinds of places. And what it does is the project management tool. You plug in the date that you get the assignment, you plug in the date that you it's due, you find the kind of assignment it is, and then it breaks it down into small manageable chunks, what you have to do each day in order to complete it on time. So that becomes like an external tool that can help you um, uh, be on top of whatever you're doing because you just have this small task to do today and then tomorrow you have another small task and in the end they add up to the end. That's right. Yeah, the, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. Exactly. We, we often exactly. can only see the, the thousand miles, right? Um, it seems like so many of these these strategies and, uh, and that you've given us three or four pretty actionable steps there that we could take if we were suffering from uh, a procrastinatory uh, situation. But it seems like so many of them are examples of, I think you, you call them external tools, almost like guardrails or little tricks that we're playing on the brain. Um, I know Jonathan Haidt has conceptualized the brain as a, as a rider on top of an elephant, right? And we have a, a rational mind, which is the, the rider. And of course, the rider feels like they are in control of the elephant because they're sitting on top and it's heading in the direction that they were looking. But of course, the, the rider can't make the elephant do anything. And the elephant is our emotional self, our, our, our unconscious self, our habits and instincts, etc. And so a lot of what we're describing we think of things like the the extended will that's necessary to sort of negotiate with yourself and get yourself at the table to do that 15 minutes of work um, or any tricks that we might pull out of our toolkit to use to overcome our natural setting. Um, these can feel like they're, they're not really me that's doing it, right? It's it's something outside of me that I'm using to keep my my elephant on track, but but my elephant isn't going to do the right thing if left to his, to his own devices. So we can use things like the Pomodoro technique. We can chunk our, our work down, right? We can, there's lots of these tools and they are useful, but can they be accompanied by something like a training of the will? Can they be accompanied by the, the slow sort of development of a self that doesn't need some of these guardrails and external tricks? Okay, it's an interesting question, and it didn't go where I thought it was oh. going to go, So, um, but I'm going to answer it. Okay. So I want to add that in addition to the writer and the elephant, Dan Chip and Chip Heath, who wrote the book Switch, add the path, which is the external um, environment that mm -hmm. can make it easier to accomplish your goals. So you don't rely on willpower, which is the writer, or on your emotional state, which is the elephant, but you actually craft a set of guardrails, as you call it, on the path that make it easier to get where you're going. Not to in interrupt you, um, is the assignment there, calculator that you mentioned an example of that path? Exactly. Yeah, okay. Exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, the science of habit formation um, relies, recognizes that willpower is a finite resource. So if you look at all the people who, you know, New Year's Day, they do their New Year's resolutions, the vast majority drop these resolutions within a month or so. Mm -hmm. They just don't sustain it because they're relying only on willpower rather than what the science of habit formation that tells us is you need to have a cue, you have to have a reward, you need to tend to um, the concept of friction or obstacles, are you making it easy to access the 
um, new behavior or you can make it hard to not access that behavior you don't want to do. Um, there's lots of evidence-based information that can help you um, change your habit, for example. Um, and very little relies on willpower because it's a finite resource. Every morning we wake up with our certain amount of willpower that we have, and it could differ between different people. But as we use it, we have less access to it. Now you can try to build it like a muscle, but you will run out as the day goes on. So let's just say you wanna eat more healthy foods. So you might have a really healthy breakfast and even, even a reasonably healthy lunch, but by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, you're snacking on whatever you want to and your willpower is gone, you're yeah. done, there's nothing left. So if you rely only on that, it's hard, but if you shape the path, for example, you say, okay, I'm not gonna have snacks at home, then you have to leave the house to go get the snack, so maybe you won't eat it. Right. So um, willpower is great if you have a lot, but don't assume if you don't have much willpower that you still can't reach your goals. You just have to find other ways to get where you want to go. So we need to be a good deal more strategic and intentional in the in the setting of our, our, uh, our goal. And by setting, I mean not just... Um, the, the setting out to do it, but also the creation of a landscape or an environment that's conducive um, in response to our strengths and our weaknesses. And, and so Absolutely. I can see, you can see how self-awareness could, could play a major role there. Um, I know we're, we're uh, time sensitive on, on this episode and it goes without saying that any of the things that you've mentioned could spawn their whole, a whole three hour talk. Um, but I wanna make sure we keep the focus for today on the situation of the, the students that you've seen over the course of uh, your career since 1991, working in the CSDC and, and now working with students through Thrive in Action. Um, we hear a lot in, in education circles about uh, poorer and poorer academic outcomes. We know the National Report Card just came out in the United States a couple of weeks ago to much uproar. Uh, we've seen similar uh, dispiriting results here in Canada recently. We also know that the mental health outcomes and the rates of mental illness or instances of uh, poor mental health are dramatically on the rise. Um, we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast before. The theories around causes for these, these increases um, largely revolve around the advent of social media, um, constant access to screens and technology, and then, of course, the, the isolation that came with COVID. What are you seeing in the lives of your university students, and maybe how has that changed uh, in terms of their health outcomes in the last 20 or so years? Um, and what are the results of their interaction with Thrive uh, TMU in response to these changes? Yeah, uh, it's a huge question. Yeah. Um, I'm going to start with the pandemic because I think, um, and I don't know who I'm quoting on this, is we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. Mm. And um, some of us, perhaps with more privilege or luck, whatever it is, were impacted, but not enormously so. I think a lot of our students, uh, particularly if they were not living at home with their families, um, really struggled during the pandemic, trying to make a living because the kind of work that they often would be working at um, closed, you know, 
retail and all those types of things. Um, so they didn't necessarily have the finances. They didn't have a lot of space. And if you're living in a basement apartment on lockdown, it's pretty awful. Um, if you're an international student, you don't know if your family is alive. I mean, there's just layers and layers and layers of this. So um, if you think about three key sources of stress being conflict, uncertainty, and lack of control, this pandemic hit all, you know, you can check all the boxes. Perfect storm. At least. And, and then there's health issues and other stuff. Um, so what we have is an extraordinary circumstance that almost no one on the planet has gone through a pandemic of this uh, magnitude. And if you think of it like a seesaw, where you know there are stressors in the world and then there are resources. And what we do is we bring to bear our resources to manage the stressors. But under these circumstances, many of the resources that we would normally bring to bear, we didn't have access to. So we start running on empty. And um, that just makes it that much harder to thrive under those circumstances. You're, you know, either you're living with five people and they're driving you crazy or you're living alone and you're in incredible isolation and on and on. So um, I know uh, from people working in counseling centers and private practices for psychotherapy that the wait lists are just, um, they're, they're very long. They're very long. There are a lot of people seeking help. They have to wait, which makes it really hard because usually you seek help just at, when you're at the end of your rope and now you're told to wait. Mm -hmm. So even harder. Um, so we have all of these things. And then we have life as it normally unfolds, which is what would tell the story going back 20 years. So um, this has just been an extraordinary time. So all the things that typically young adults, which is the average population in a university counseling center or post-secondary, um, would have to deal with from you know, career choice to separation from family, forming important relationships, creating a career, all of those things, on top of a time of life where um, some young adults do develop mental illnesses, mm. right? So we know that it's a vulnerable time between 18 and 25, more or less. Yeah. And then throw a pandemic in the mix, you have an extraordinary situation. Um, and the truth is that all the people who are supposed to be helping, you know, working as counselors and others are also going through their own experience. So no one is exempt. We're all in the same storm. And so it is a very challenging time. And that's why resilience, um, just to get to your previous level of functioning, which is what the five-factor model looks at, is something that can be very useful because these are all inner resourcing type experiences. In contrast to something like the uh, multi-systemic resilience that um, Michael Ungar at Dalhousie talks about, he's looking at both the internal and the external resources. And he puts a great deal of importance on can you negotiate for and navigate the resources that you need. So it's both ruggedness that's internal, but also resources, financial and other, um, that will make a difference around resilience. So, um, you know, and then there's the work of uh, Bonnie St. John and Alan Haynes who talk about micro resilience. 
strategies, which are the moment-to-moment, day-to-day strategies that can be so helpful to help reset an upset that happens in the course of a day to get yourself back to neutral. And then finally, there's like post-traumatic growth and anti-fragility, which is really a an engineering term. Hmm. Um, but within psychology, we talk about it as post-traumatic growth, which is after significant trauma, whereby you have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, where your life is really upended by the trauma. It's the growth that happens as you work through that trauma. Hmm. And rather than going back to your previous level of functioning, in some ways, even though you're still suffering with some of the the trauma, you have more wisdom, a different perspective, um, more of an ability to reach out to others, et cetera. So post-traumatic growth is a outgrowth of treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's overwhelming. Just, just, just listening to you enumerate the first of all the perfect storm uh, of of illness um, that we've witnessed over the last few years, and then the the various steps and tools that need to be taken advantage of to perhaps recover from that and move into a position of of growth and and flourishing. We've got to, if 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 I've got that all correct, we need to build resilience through challenge uh, while taking account of internal and external resources that may be available to us and learning to navigate those appropriately. Uh, we need to be aware of micro-resilience or opportunities for micro-resilience in the day-to-day and then be mindful of any uh, trauma, which we, in many cases, may or may not be aware of in our lives and take advantage of, again, those resources to help us move out of that and into a position of growth. Oh, and by the way, your term paper is due uh, two weeks from now, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like this, the conversation that I'm hearing, especially in the political realm around education right now, about learning loss and about recovering learning, about how I think the number I just heard was that 46% of grade six Canadian students meet the uh, the established math level or something, and the the conversation seems to be about. How do we get that number to be 100? Or how do we get students to be reading and and doing math at the right level? In your opinion, in your professional perspective, are we, you mentioned putting the cart before the horse earlier, are are we putting the academic cart in front of the mental health horse? Um, I would put it a little differently. I would say um, we can't pretend that the past two and a half years have not happened. And back to business as usual, and why aren't the standards up to where they should be? Mm-hmm. Why don't we just accept that everyone, the teachers, the students, the parents, everyone went through the same pandemic. So we're technically behind, in quotation marks, but all of them are. Mm-hmm. All of the kids are. So why are you worrying about it? There's no behind. It's just that the new normal. And then they'll progress slowly over time. And if you have to say, they need an extra, you know, month of school for the next two years, or if they need to, whatever the solution is, you are dealing not just with an exceptional group within all of the children, it's all of the children. Yeah. So let's just say there's no behind. Yeah. Behind from what? Behind from before the pandemic, when the world was a different place. Yeah. We're not in the same place. Yeah, I, I think often about, like, what, what, are these math levels in, in reference to uh, standards that were established perhaps even pre-COVID, certainly, but perhaps 
pre-social media or, or just pre the, the massively complex information ecosystem that these students are navigating through now, right? Like the, the brain of a, a 2022 teenager isn't the same thing as the brain of a, let's say, 1985 teenager. And while they may not be good as good at the, the calculatory skills that were deemed necessary for success in future life at that time, they have skill sets and types of thinking, parts of their brain that have developed in, in ways that simply weren't available at that time. And yet it seems like our standards and our assessment of their their current situation are a bit retrograde. They're a bit uh, slow in realizing um, exactly what what environment these students are heading into when they head into the, the 21st century marketplace of information um, and what influences are besetting them in this present moment that, that we may not be taking account for. And so I love to see what, what TMU has done and what other schools we've discussed in the past have done, putting courses like yours on the menu and saying, uh, this is as important, if not more important, than your subject-based, maybe career-oriented uh, learning. I want to make sure we, we talk about resilience very specifically before we get you out of here. Uh, this is your primary focus, as far as I understand it, um, and something that, that you care about very deeply. Um, we've sort of perambulated around a definition of resilience uh, over this episode. Can you give us uh, a hard definition and maybe talk about how developing towards resilience may see us achieve better outcomes in, in the conditions that we've just spent the last 10 minutes talking about? Can you just repeat the last part of the sure. question? I, I didn't catch it. Sure. Just how, how can resilience and how can the tools that you might prescribe as, as leading us towards resilient address some of these these maladies, these, these social conditions that we've just finished talking about? So um, I think about resilience as um, an inner resource that we can cultivate that will help us to reset, to bounce back, possibly even bounce forward, recognizing that there will always be challenges and setbacks and crises. And it's our job on some level is to manage it and maybe managing it is getting external help, sure. But some of the managing of it is how we choose to perceive and interact with our, our lives. So if we cultivate the capacity, perhaps through a mindfulness meditation practice where we um, learn to create that little bit of space between us and the event so that we're not hooked, but can actually observe for a moment and make a decision, be more intentional in our choices, that's a skill set. A second skill set could be 10 things happen in a day. Nine of them are good. One of them is bad. What do you pay attention to? You pay attention to the negative one. That's our negativity bias. Yeah, of course. What if you chose intentionally to notice three good things that happen every day? What role you played in them? And what does it say about your future? You can do that at the dinner table with your family. You can do it in a journal. You can do it just before you go to bed. It, these are... Um, evidence-based through research that this can have a huge impact on your mood. What if you learned how to become more hopeful and optimistic? So um, Seligman talks about learned optimism. And I've developed a series of questions that you can pose to yourself 
to change your explanatory style, to go from how you explain the good thing or the bad thing, the explanation you give to things will have an impact on your mood and your capacity to bounce back. If you have a more optimistic, hopeful explanation, you um, get energy from it, and then you're able to regroup and move forward. Self-compassion, based on the work of Kristen Neff, um, she talks about the forgiveness of the self. Can we recognize our common humanity that we all make mistakes, we all suffer, we're not the only person in this. And if we could treat ourselves just as well as we treat someone we love and say the things to that to ourselves that we would say to our best friend, we would allow ourselves to regroup and figure out a way out of the mess we're in. And then I was really influenced by Angela Duckworth and her work on grit. And I know that it's controversial in that some people have attributed to her work this idea that um, grit is only looking at the internal capacity of the individual and not the context that they live in. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's been debate in the field. Can, but can I, I just think interrupt in her? Essence, for a second, yeah. I'm sorry to, to cut you off. I want to make sure yeah, that yeah, yeah. the audience kind of has just uh, uh, maybe a surface level sense of this controversy that you're describing. Um, Angela Duckworth has become probably one of the most popular and well-known figures uh, within positive psychology. I've, I've watched her TED Talks uh, more than once in a few of our classes and really appreciate her work and the, the intensity and the scientific rigor that she brings to the idea of grit. Now, as far as I understand it, the claim that has been levied against this concept um, is, as, as you just described, that it doesn't take into account the context and the environment, and that that can lead to a form of sort of victim blaming, where you say, like, well, uh, well you're in this negative situation, the, the, the spiral is downwards, that's because you haven't exercised grit, right? Regardless of your economic situation, your race, your, your marital status, et cetera, all of these what we might call conditions uh, of your life, regardless of that, you, you needed to practice some of these methods. You needed to be more mindful, more forgiving, uh, more compassionate, et cetera. And because you weren't, you are now in, in the nasty state that you're in. Um, I don't at all think that that's what uh, Angela Duckworth is saying. Can you just help to, to clear that up for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've actually heard her on a podcast uh, address exactly what you just described. And she said that's absolutely never been her intention or her findings either, because she's doing this as research. But she really thinks of it more like a dance. Mm. And that your, um, your external circumstances impact your success and your internal commitment to not give up impacts your success and the two like it's important to try to create a level playing field to whatever extent possible so that everyone has the same access to education and opportunity and everything else and at the same time she is studying the people who don't give up where do they end up so um just to circle back to resilience, I was inspired by Duckworth's work on grit. And then I thought about uh, students who um, I worked with over the years in the counseling center who would sometimes give up on their own goals because they were just so overwhelmed by everything. Um, so how could I teach 
that persistence. And so Christine Podesky has this wonderful strength-based intervention called a personal model of resilience. And we'll wrap up with that. Um, she uh, uses it in the context of therapy, but it can be done in any context. And it's on the Thriving in Action Online website, um, where you basically inquire, what do you do when you're doing something you love to do? That you do it for the sake of it, a sport, a hobby, whatever it might be. What are the attitudes you bring to bear and the behaviors that when you face setbacks, you find a way around it? Identify those. Then separate out the context from the strategies and attitudes. And you have these standalone resilient strategies and attitudes that you can then, I think of it as like transposing to another key in music, you apply to a different challenge. You trust these strategies and behaviors because you've been doing them for years, potentially. You don't have to learn how to do anything new. You just have to do it in another place. And that can make, that can level the playing field in many ways because it's very much strength-based. Yeah. I know you've, uh, you've that, got a hard I have yeah. to say my goodbye. <laughs> I, I so appreciate your time. Thanks for being here with us. I hope it was illuminating uh, as much for the audience as it has been for me. Uh, and we, I, I look forward to, with hope, to being able to continue conversations like this with you in the future. Thank you Thanks so again. much, Mike. It's been a pleasure. All the best. All right. All the best to you. Well, folks, there you have it. Dr. Diana Breacher here with us talking about a whole range of topics, positive psychology, cognitive behavioral therapy, the current state of... Uh, mental health among students, and especially how a model of resilience empowers us in whatever situation we're in uh, to find inner strength, to find self-compassion, to find forgiveness, and to move forward with a growth mindset ultimately into a realm of flourishing. We wish that for for all of our students. Certainly, we wish it for ourselves, uh, and we hope that this podcast can play uh, however small a role in, in giving you access and giving you the type of information that's going to lead you to those tools, ultimately to the development of the full toolkit that uh, people like Dr. Diana Breacher have been so, uh, so generous and, and so intuitive in providing uh, to the students at TMU. Thanks for being here with us. We're looking forward to another great podcast next week. I'm Mike Helsby. I'll talk to you then. And of course, be sure to join us next week when I'm going to be joined in studio by the University of Toronto's UNICEF student outreach team. They're going to be talking to us about their work with uh, public schools around the area and especially the work that UNICEF is doing around children's rights and access to health resources for children around the world. Can't wait for that conversation. We'll see you then.